So over the past few weeks, we've been looking at um, uh, the practical outworking of our faith through grace, faith, and deeds, and uh, it's sort of become a mini-series that we've got up on our, on our page, and uh, if you're part of this church, I ask you not uh, often to listen to those sermons because it will give you an idea of where we're going as a church and obviously what we believe uh, on, on uh, Chapters like James chapter 2 and things like that. Uh, so, and if you have any questions, please, uh, we'd love to get together and answer questions that you may have. But um, I'm just going to give a, a quick recap for those who um, may have missed the, the talks and just a bit of a reminder that to those who, who actually did hear them. And so, what we've been looking at, we saw that God is not interested in religious ritual, but authentic relationship. We looked at Isaiah 58. Uh, he speaks about true fasting, includes looking after widows and orphans and things like that, and uh, that preaches online. And then we looked at uh, the relationship that is based on faith in Jesus Christ, but expressed through love and good deeds. And we looked at James chapter 2. Uh, and uh, you can once again see that, and uh, uh, that uh, the relationship is through faith and deeds. We looked at that, and then we looked last week how Paul combines grace with giving. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we looked at 2 Corinthians 8, uh, and he speaks about the grace of giving and how this poor church, the Macedonian churches, gave far beyond the ability, a poor church, you can read it in there, and the reason they gave is because they were so grateful, they had such a revelation of God's grace for them, His love for them, His mercy for them, that they could do nothing but give back in return. Um, I also mentioned last week that I feel there's a bit of a shift in Oceanside, uh, sometimes it does happen like, times like these when we are moving into the bigger facility or something like that. And uh, our mission statement says this, that we are wanting to be a gathering, healing, training, sending church. It's like a conveyor belt. When you, when you come in here, we want to see, gather the last, gather people who are looking for a new home, gather the hurt, gather the destitute, all of those, and, and we want to see them healed, the ones that need healing both spiritually and emotionally, we want to see people healed and set free by God. But then we want to equip them, train them, so that they can be sent out of this building into their primary mission field, which is where they live, work, and move, and have their being. And so, um, so that's the process. And um, uh, we focus on the gathering and healing often, and we do community really well. I'm really proud of you. When I meet with new people, uh, often I've never met them before, uh, and they may have been coming for a couple of weeks, but when I do have an opportunity of saying hi, I often like to say, so how did you find out of Oceanside or what you think about it? And um, one of the main things that many people say is it's such a friendly community. They felt so welcome. So I want to thank you for that, uh, for making people welcome. But I felt that God was transitioning us from sort of a cruise ship mentality. And, uh, you know, where we, when you're on a cruise ship, it's so cool. I don't know if you've done it. I've done a few. 
I don't know if it was so cool on Noah's cruise ship, but it was certainly on the ones that I've been on, were fun. And uh, when you're on the top deck there and the music's playing and Calypso music and all of that, whatever it is, and you've got your little drink with the umbrella in it and you're sitting on a jack chair and the captain comes walking past you, uh, he's very happy to see you sitting there, so happy that you're having fun because he leads the ship and means you're happy, the staff's happy, everybody's happy, and he moves on from one to another. He does it about once or twice in his in his suit or whatever he calls it. And, uh, but if I was on a battleship, an aircraft carrier or something like that, and I decided to check out and I was sitting on the top deck having a pina colada or something like this, in the chair, and, the, and the captain of the ship walked past me, there would be a different response, I think. I'm just guessing. And because uh, he would have a different expectation, a different expectation. And I feel that God is taking in this place where he really wants us to uh, ramp up our stepping out into our cities and into our areas through love and good deeds. I'm praying for this for the home groups, for every group we have, that there will be an outward focus or at least a prayer for that. We have teams that go in the streets and over in that. But evangelism is not an event. It's a lifestyle. And so uh, God is calling us, I think, to step up. We will still always have uh, that cruise ship for the new people that are coming here. But uh, if you've been here, as Nathan said, more than one week, you're not new. So, <laughs> But we see this... Um, Two scriptures that have sort of linked this, this series together. There's two. And one is 2 Corinthians 15, 17 to 21, uh, where Paul reminds us of the high calling and the, serv- and the privilege of serving Christ. That as ambassadors of Christ, we are to represent him well, because the way we represent him in word and deed will have an eternal impact on those around us. The reason for that is because the world sees Jesus through the lenses of the church. When we put, say, I'm a Christian saved by grace through faith, people look at us. And we can either, unfortunately, attract or push people away, depending how we serve them, honor them, and so on. Now, we're not perfect, and that's why grace is there, but that is the intention. The intention is that. Jesus said in John 13 uh, in the, um, or 14 in the upper room, he said, this is it. A new command I give unto you, love one another. How? As I have loved you. He loved us much. And then he said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. I've got that underlined that this. It's not by the preaching. It's not by the buildings. It's not by the worship. It's not by the theology we have. And those are all important. But it's by this one thing that Jesus will identify as his church. The ones that loved one another as he loved us. Because if we can love each other here, it gets easier to love each other out there. 
And the world is watching how we represent Christ. And we're coming to a stage, I think, in the body of Christ across the world where there's going to be a great mobilization. It's not in my notes, but anyway, it's in my head. It's a a great mobilization of the priesthood of all believers. That it's not going to be superstars or super bands or super this. And I I don't, there, there might be a place for them. They reach many people. But it's going to be the mobilization of every single saint, that's who, every single co-heir of Christ, that's you, who will understand the authority that has been given them in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Nobody has more authority or less authority. It's whether we use it or, or not, and it's, and it's applied by faith. We'll see something in the thing of Joshua, how crazy God is and how uh, foolish some of the things he, he tells us to do uh, to get major, amazing results. And he does that so that he will get the, the glory and not us. The priesthood of all believers. You see, when one preacher falls, and unfortunately they do, they're human, like all of us, um, but when they fall into sin, whatever way it is, uh, um, it rocks a whole community. It can rock a nation if it's a guy that's with such a profile. But as a priesthood of all believers, when one of us falls, when we all, we can just pick him up. We're all going along, and we just carry them along with us until they're restored and healed. That's what God wants to see. Restoration in the life of the church. Restoration in people's lives. That we will, when, uh, uh, I think it's Galatians says, if a brother falls into sin, let us restore him gently. Gently. So that he can be restored. Why? Because God loves him. And I've got big logs in my eyes, and so have you. And we need to be careful because we may need that restoration ourselves. But when the world sees, man, this is a place that people love each other. This is a place of healing. This is a place of restoration. This is a place where I can pour out my heart and it's not going to become gossip. But this is a place where I'm going to be challenged and equipped to be the light in the world. The light, and I love Ferenc did a talk yesterday, and he shared it so well that his life is not his job or his, uh, and his family. His life is his job, his family, and his faith. It's all one thing. And that's how God wants us to live. We saw that in uh, Corinthians from verse 17. I'll read it quickly. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. All of this is from God who reconciled us to him through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against him. Throw away that little black book of all those hurts and all those offenses and all of those things that were done to you. That is hindering you from going forward in your work with Christ with God. It's not hurting anybody else. It's hurting you. Um, Someone said that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. 
The other person's free. They don't even know they've hassled you. They go around you. You know, sit the side of the church, change church, see them in this mall, and you just see like this, and hey, how you doing? I'm free. <laughs> Remember, God does not count our sins against us because Jesus Christ paid the price for them in the finished work of the cross if we've accepted him as our Lord and Savior. And he gave us, to us, the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God is making his appeal through us. Just meditate on that. We implore you on Christ's behalf to reconcile to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul speaks of this reconciliation in Romans 5, one of my, chapter 5, one of my favorite uh, chapters uh, on the love, mercy, and grace and the love of God. But with just verse 9 and 10, he says this, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? The wrath of God that was upon us as sinners was satisfied in Jesus Christ on the cross. He is no longer angry with you. He loves you. He's trying to make everything possible for you to serve him in a way that that brings him glory so that others can see that glory through you and want what you have. That's what the gospel is all about. It even so he says, and he's talking about himself here, Paul too, you and I, for if While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through this life? Jesus came to reconcile us to God, to restore a relationship broken by sin with our Father. To reconcile us to God, to take our place, to take our sin, pay the price on that cross. You see, when we understand grace like that, why won't we want to give God? When we understand our salvation and we remind ourselves, why wouldn't we want to serve Him? You see, and the second scripture that held this to, that's the one, is this Galatians 2, 8 to 10. One of the most quoted scriptures in the New Testament. It's a powerful one. And it says, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no man shall boast. And many people put a line under there and say, cool, I'm saved, I do what I like. I don't have to work at it. God saved me. Greasy grace. You see, why is the subject of grace, when you speak to people that live in this crazy world of hyper-grace, why is the, sub, the conversation with them, the, with them how far we can go before we fall off the edge and not how close we can get to Jesus Christ because of grace? It's always, well, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this, and, and my toe's over the edge, but it's cool. No, grace is there so we can come to his throne. The throne of grace, Hebrews 4 And when we come, we receive mercy and we find more grace. Grace allows us access to the Holy of Holies. That's what grace is all about. 
It's not come to Jesus, get an insurance policy, a fire insurance policy, so I don't burn in hell. And yes, there is a hell, and we'll speak about those one day. Don't believe Netflix. But there is a hell that we have been saved from. And we're not buying insurance policy. We're buying a whole new life, an abundant life a powerful life, an eternal life with Jesus Christ. It's so much more than getting out of jail free. It's a life of an overcomer, a powerful life, full of the Spirit and the power of God. The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is in us, and He wants to see us use it in the city and in this nation. Amen? And this is the amazing thing, for we are God's workmanship. You're a work made by God. And you were created in Christ to do good works which God prepared in advance for you to do. So two things are abundantly clear in this passage. That our salvation is totally dependent on grace. And two, that grace should automatically produce good works in and through our lives. Created in Christ to do good works. In 2 Corinthians 15, 9 to 11. Paul, this great apostle of grace, speaking of himself, writes this, For I am the least of all the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. I witnessed Christians being stoned to death. I chased them down. I put them. Can you imagine the condemnation that Paul could have lived in? You think you did bad things? God saved Paul. If we think we're, our sin is too big for God, then we've shrunk God to a little thing like this. No sin is too big for God. And Paul understood this. So he's not talking at this out of a place of uh, condemnation, but remembering, and we'll see why. He goes on. He says, but by the grace of God... I am what I am, and this grace to me was not without effect. And what did it do? It caused me to work harder than all of them. I was so grateful for what God did for me, for what He saved me from, that I wanted to see others saved. And I worked hard at it. Hard work is a good thing. Rest is also a good thing. But it wasn't I that worked, but listen to this. The grace of God that was within me. Whether then it was I or they, speaking of the apostles, this is what we preach and this is what you believe. So the question today is, what effect has God's grace personally had on our lives? What effect has it had on our lives? It's a question that I wrote down for me too. Is it causing me to want to serve God more, work harder than any more because I'm so grateful for what God has done in my life? You see, to Paul, grace and works were inseparable. And we see this tension between grace and works played out throughout biblical history. An example we'll see is Israel's victory over Jericho. That was an act of grace, and we'll see that. And next week we'll look at some others, Naaman and some people like that. 
God healed through an act of grace. He didn't deserve it. But we'll see this. Israel has just crossed the Jordan River. The men had been circumcised, and they were now faced with the first obstacle, the walled city of Jericho. What an amazing thing. They've just come through. Coming through the river was an act of grace. God stopped the flood. They walked through. Getting circumcised with the, with the sharp stone. Don't read about it. Must have been a painful thing. And now, all these guys had to go to war. Take the city. And in Joshua chapter 6, you read the story, we see God's grace at work. You see, before they had done anything, before they had lifted a finger, God promised them victory. Go and read that. Joshua 6, 2. The Lord said to Joshua, this is the beginning. See, I have given Jericho into your hands, hands and its king and its mighty warriors. He gave Jericho to them in advance as an act of grace. The victory was a gift from God. But the victory was based on their trust and faith that God was able to do what he had promised. So he says, listen, I'm giving you the victory. But they didn't take out the deck chairs and sit by. No, you've got to do something about this. To get this victory, you have got to possess the land. You've got to possess the land. And so... um, um, it was based on their trust. And we see that in Hebrews 11.30, the great chapter of faith. It doesn't say by their strength or by blowing trumpets they got it. It says here, by faith the walls of Jericho fell. Whose faith? Their faith. In God's plan. And after people had marched around them for seven days, the walls fell. Back to Joshua 6. We'll read from verse 1 to 7. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. And now all you need to do to seal the victory, I've given you, Josh. Patience, <laughs> Josh, sure. March around the city with all the armed men and do this for six days. And by the way, Joshua, have the priests carry trumpets, ram's horns in front of the ark. And oh yes, then on the seventh day, march around the city seven times with priests blowing trumpets. And then when you hear the sound of the long blast, you have the whole army give a loud shout. And the wall of the city will collapse and will go up. Everyone will go straight in. Can you imagine God saying, God, we want to take city, Nanaimo. Oh, get the trumpeters, the tambourine players, start shouting at the walls and it will all work. Amazing thing. God's plans are not our plans. His ways are not our ways. 
two things. Joshua definitely knew he heard God. And when Joshua heard God, the people followed him. So he calls the police together and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant and have seven um, priests uh, uh, carrying trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army to advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. What an what amazing faith. To believe that the walls would come tumbling down by marching around for seven days, not just one day. Can you imagine? Seven days. I don't know how big the city is. Like, marching, hot heat. Ark of the Covenant must have weighed a, lots of gold in that thing. Heavy. One day. Two days. Three days. Ah. Oh. I'm going fishing. This is way too hard for me. I'm going back to the Jordan. I'm going to catch some fish and hang out by the river. Seven days. And then on the seventh day, seven times. You see, they then had to blow trumpets and shout at the walls. Joshua Yeah, that's true. They could not speak. They were not allowed to. Because murmuring divides. You know, majority rule can be a good or bad thing. It didn't work out so well for the children of Israel when eight of the ten spies said, let's not do this. And two said, yes. Let's have a vote. Oh, sorry. Josh and Caleb, 80% don't want to do it. God says, okay, I'll give you 40 years to think about it. (laughs) Round the mountain, round the mountain. You see, we never fail any of God's tests. We just go round the mountain until we pass them. He loves us too much. Imagine. So this time, Joshua learned, I think. I'm just thinking of this now. Joshua must have learned. No talking. No complaining. I don't want to go back. Spend another 40 years across that river. Maybe. My animated mind. You see, even though God had promised the victory over Jericho in advance, Joshua knew that their victory was dependent on their obedience and faith in God, no matter how crazy it seemed. Why we read about Jericho is because it was such a miracle. You see, Joshua immediately took action. They didn't, talk, they didn't just talk about it, meet about it, sing about it, pray about it. They didn't form a wall-bashing people-shouting committee. They did it. They put their faith in action. Prayer is a good thing. I'm going to get in hot water. Please don't fall out the chair. Often, when people are asked to do something, instead of saying, not all the time, instead of saying, no, I don't want to do it, they'll say, I'll pray about it. Christian needs for no. Ask any pastor. 
I'll pray about it and then walk on. We've got to put these things into action. Lots of prophetic words over the city, over this nation, over this island, north, south, east, west. Yongi Chao came here, prophesied. Major revival would break out across North America from this island. Yongi Chao personally came here and went to the top and the bottom. And I've been to these Yongi Chao prophetic reading things. Oh, that's so awesome, man. God, you're going to do it. We all go home. No, it's through the priesthood. The priesthood carrying the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders, the anointing, the presence of God upon them that is going to break the walls of separation, break the walls of sin, break the walls of suicide and addiction that is killing our nation. It is not another program. It's not another prime minister. It's not another party. It's none of those things. God puts them in place, and we should pray for wisdom for them. But God, but God, but God. And we've got to put our army boots on. We are the bride of Christ, but we should have army boots under that dress. Because we've got to take land. You think uh, it's bad being called uh, the son of God, ladies? Think of being called the bride of Christ. They sought God, they heard God, and they acted on it. A plan so crazy and a victory so complete that only God could get the glory. Isn't that what James was talking about when he said this? James 2, 18. But some will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith with deeds. Right through. Corinthians 1 starts about not coming with wise and persuasive words, that God chooses the foolish to confound the wise. And it's not wise and persuasive, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that man's faith would not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. And I've asked Nathan to something a friend of mine many years ago, I think I was in Australia, this guy Rob Rufus, he was preaching, a dear friend of mine, powerful preacher, and um, he was speaking on the gospel, just an incredible, I'd say, power evangelist. Just moved in power, and he loved the lost, and God used him in a powerful way. Many people saved and set free. But he found this, he didn't write this, and it's called the parable of the fishless fisherman, and I'm going to ask Nathan to read it because I might stop every sentence if I read it. Please put it up, my friend. So it came to pass that a group existed that called themselves fishermen. And lo, there were many fishermen in the water, uh, many fish in the waters around them. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams lakes filled with fish. The fish were hungry year after year. Those who called themselves fishermen met in meetings and talked about the call to fish, the abundance of fish and how they might go about fishing. They continually searched for new and better methods of fishing and new and better definitions of fishing. I'm going to say they sponsored nationwide and worldwide conferences to discuss fishing 
and to promote fishing and hear about all the ways of fishing. These fishermen built large and beautiful buildings called fishing headquarters. The plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and that every fisherman should fish. One thing they didn't do, however, was fish. They organized a board to send out fishermen to other places where, they were, where there were many fish. Those who had the great vision and the courage to speak about fishing, to define fishing, and to, um, and to promote the idea of fishing in faraway streams and lakes, where many other fish of different colors lived, formed the board. Also, the board hired staff and appointed committees and held many meetings to define fishing, to defend fishing, and to decide what new streams should be fished in, but the staff and the committee members did not fish. Expensive training centers were built to teach fishermen how to fish. Those who taught had doctorates in fishology, but the teachers never fished themselves. They only taught fishing. Year after year, graduate graduates were sent to do full-time fishing, some to distant waters filled with fish. Further, fishermen built large printing houses to publish fishing guides. A speaker's bureau was provided to schedule special speakers on the subject of fishing. Many who felt the call responded and were sent to fish But, like the fishermen back home, they never fished. Some said they wanted to be a part of the fishing party, but they felt called to furnish fishing equipment. Others felt that it was their job to relate to the fish in a good way so that the fish would know the difference between good and bad fishermen. After one stirring message on the necessity of fishing, one young man left the meeting and went fishing. The next day, he reported that he caught two outstanding fish. He was honored for his excellent catch and was scheduled to visit all the big meetings to tell how he did it. So he gave up fishing in order to have time to tell about the experience to the other fishermen. He was placed on the fisherman's general board as a person having considerable fishing experience. Now, it is true that many of the fishermen sacrificed, put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish every day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of them, fun of their fishermen's club and the fact that they claimed to be fishermen, yet never fished. They wondered about those who felt it was of little value to attend their weekly meetings to talk about fishing. After all, they, they not following the master who would say, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So imagine how hurt some of them were when someone suggested one day that those who do not catch fish are not fishermen and therefore cannot follow the master. You know, it hurt, but it did sound correct. Is that person a fisherman if year after year, he or she never catches any fish? Mm. Yeah. 
Sobering words, sobering words for sure. Church, God loves us. He has a plan for each one of our lives. He saved us for a purpose. And it's not our ability that he wants. If it was, he would have left Jesus Christ here to save the world. It's our availability and obedience. That's all it takes. He wants to get the glory, church. He wants to get the glory. And it's important that we meet. It's important that we encourage one another. Hebrews tells us that. But it's to spur each other on. Hebrews 10. To love and good deeds. To shine the light. And so I'm just praying for myself too because I, I tell you, this is the thing that I find. If the worship team can come forward while I speak this. What I find, and this is why I've, I sense a shift, it's we will always be a community that loves and shares and we want to see people healed and it's a process. So if you're in that process of seeking God or being healed, no problem. We want that. That's not going to gather in healing, training, sending. But what can happen is that church becomes an event a Sunday event, and it's important that we meet. The, the apostles met publicly, house to house. And we get our fulfillment from the community. And because of that, we stay where we are. Because this is a cool place. I've felt God's presence and all of that. But God wants us to be, in a sense, leaky Christians. He wants us to get filled up. He wants us to get full of His presence, His anointing, His encouragement and courage. And during the week, that will leak out of us through our looking out to people around Him. The best way to start a relationship with somebody you want to get saved is just love them and help them. Allow the Holy Spirit to make space for you to speak to them. He will show you and tell them. We cannot put 10 tons of truth that they're going to hell on a one-ton bridge of relationship. We cannot do that. But when we love them, we say, listen, bro, I want to see you saved and set free. This is what God did for me, and this is why. They trust you and believe you. And that's all we have to do. It could be a snow shovel in winter for an old neighbor. It could be a visit at the old age homes once a week. It could be anything that you like doing, running like ferrets, hiking, fishing. Take people along outside of your circle. Draw them in. They might be the most irritating, horrible people you've seen. They might smell a fish. But you know, God makes place for His Holy Spirit to begin to move in that light. Through love and good deeds, light shine. The enemy has said, well, you don't know enough. You don't know this. You don't know that. That's a lie from the pit of hell. You are saved. You have eternal seed in you. God will give you words. And if you don't know, it doesn't matter because we're a team. We're a team. You say, listen, my friend's got all these questions. Do you know somebody can help him? Sure, no problem. We'll sit down with them. We'll love them some more. We'll see them set free. Don't be afraid to step out. But start with a cup of water.
Jesus said, in my name. And I'm telling you, church, I just sense, even now, the pleasure of God upon us. Because I sense a stirring in our hearts. And when we fall and when we fail, we come and get whole and healed. We come and get encouraged by the community, through community. And we go with friends if we're afraid on ourselves. We take community with them. And we take community to there so they can see they love. By this shall all men know. By this shall all men know. By this that you love one another. And you love me. The greatest command. Let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does. Don't get stressed out. Just be kind to one another. Be kind to people. And let God do the rest. Amen. We cannot save anybody. Only God can and does. And thank God for that. Let's stand for a while and just worship God. That parable of the fishless fisherman uh, we'll put on our um, we'll put in our um, newsletter. It's an electronic newsletter. Uh, if you don't get it, just sign up for it or go and get our app, and you can have that um, that parable for yourself. I just want to pray first, Lord. I thank you. For these beautiful people, priesthood of all believers. Lord, whether it's to blow a trumpet or dance around the city, Lord, it doesn't matter. What matters is that we are obedient to what you tell us to do. So, Lord, I pray for creative ways to spring on through the arts, through music, through gardening, through golfing, through fishing, through hunting. Creative ways, Lord, through, through doing projects, whatever it is. Creative ways that we can connect with people and we can bring light to them. I pray that in the precious name of Jesus. Let's worship God.